Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Nothing ever happened underground in Louisiana Cause there ain't no underground in Louisiana There is only Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome to another episode of Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called Tesori Hour, covering all five musicals that have bowed on Broadway by Miss Janine Tesori. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. Today is a weird day. Um, It is a... This is a half normal episode, half different episode. Uh, Half this episode is going to be just me because the truth is that I have had a lot of difficulty finding a guest for this episode. You know, I I just have had a really difficult time finding a guest. And we finally did get a guest for this episode and then just timing wise all went to pot. And so our guest, uh, one Mr. Marcus Scott, who is a who's an accomplished playwright and writer and he's had his work shown on Playbill and in L he's had his uh dramatic works performed across the country he's actually in rehearsal for a show right now which is part of the reason why this episode is going to be a half and half uh timing just worked out in a very odd way and uh we were not able to do a full episode together so we only will have Marcus coming in and out uh, I will be recording his section separately from this and I will intersperse 
conversations with Marcus with sections of me just going at it alone. Now, here's the thing. For those of you who are familiar with this podcast, you know that uh, me talking a lot just happens. I can have a guest on and I still could basically be monologuing for 10 minutes. So you won't necessarily know the difference, but it, there is a difference. <laughs> it is it is a half regular episode, half one man show. It's going to throw you for a loop and keep you on edge. So strap in guys, because I don't know what I'm doing with this one. It's, it is wild. Tough and dreary and all disheveled, 16 feet below sea level, baby, baby. gonna drown. Let's get into it. Caroline or Change is written by our homegirl, Janine Story and Tony Kushner. It is about a black maid, Caroline, working in Lake Charles, Louisiana, circa 1963 for a Jewish family. Caroline has four kids. Uh, she's got Emmy, Jackie, and Joe living at home with her. Larry, her oldest, is in the Navy. Yeah, he's in the Navy. Caroline is divorced. She's 39. The Jewish family she works for, the Gelmans, Stuart, Rose, and Noah. Noah is eight years old. His mother died the previous year from lung cancer. She smoked too many cigarettes. And in a wave of panic, his father, Stuart, who is a clarinetist, his uh, Noah's mother played the bassoon. Stuart runs up to New York City, finds Rose. I think it's Rose Gelman. No, Rose, Rose sorry, Rose Stopnik. What am I fucking saying? Rose Stopnik. Uh, his wife's best friend and gets her to agree to marry him so Noah can have a mother and also so Stuart won't be alone with Noah day and night. That is the backstory. What ends up happening is Rose is in this new town, this new part of the country, really. She's only ever known Manhattan and now she's living in the South uh, with a husband who is basically comatose and a young boy who hates her. And Caroline, the maid, who is uh, very, the word they always use is mean, but we'll get into that in a second. And Rose has a pet peeve that Noah keeps leaving loose change in his pockets for Caroline to find. And so she tells Noah and Caroline that any loose change Caroline finds, she gets to keep. So Rose does this so that way Noah can learn responsibility with money and that they can sort of somewhat give Caroline the raise that she deserves and they claim that they cannot afford. And lots of things fall out from that. And we'll get into all of that in just a second. That is the basic plot of Carolina Change. Now, let's begin with how I came to know this show. And then I'm going to go into sort of the makings of this show. A 14-year-old Matt Coplick did see the original production of Carolina Change. His grandmother, Nancy Tickton, had seen it at the public and she liked it a great deal. And she thought I might like it most because there was a part for a young boy in it, the part of Noah. Now, Noah is eight and I was 14. And while I did still have dreams of being a professional actor, I knew I was not going to be passing for eight years old at this point. So I was able to see the show and not like be jealous of Harrison Chad in the role and going, I could do it better. I sat there going, this is not my role. It's fine. But that's the reason why my grandmother took me. And I was mesmerized by this show. I had seen Wicked and Avenue Q at this point. You know, I thought I knew what I loved what I thought theater could do. This totally blew my brains. 
in every way, shape, and form. I became obsessed with it. I was obsessed with Anika Noni Rose in it, and I have since followed her career from that moment on. And then I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but in one year from uh, April or May of 2004 to March slash April of 2005, I saw Carolina Change, and then I saw Light in the Piazza with the same grandmother, by the way, Nancy Tickton. Shout out, Nanny. And in that year, those two shows back to back, a monster was born because I started to become more aware of esoteric works. I was embracing Sondheim more. I got into Sweeney Todd and Follies and Company, and I became an obnoxious douche because all I wanted were the shows that were more sophisticated and refined. And I sort of turned my nose down at the mainstream fair. And there became a trend for many years at the Tony Awards with me where everyone was rooting for the one thing. And I was always rooting for the show that had no chance of winning. So the year of Spamalot, I was rooting for Light in the Piazza, whereas most of my friends were rooting for Spelling Bee or Dirty Round Scoundrels. So I was the lone wolf. The year of Spring Awakening, everyone was for Spring Awakening. I was for Great Gardens. In the Heights, I was for Passing Strange. Like I just, I was that bitch. And it really kind of began with this season. Much as I loved Wicked, much as Wicked is still a part of my DNA, part of me at the time really wanted Carolina Change to win. Part of me wanted this show to really succeed. I wanted more people to see it. And the fact that it wasn't connecting really broke my heart. It was the first time I saw a show that I thought was so brilliant. And I thought, how is it that no one else sees that this is so brilliant? And I realized sometimes people are stupid and have really bad taste. Hi, Marcus. Hello. How are you doing? <laughs> oh, I am. I'm fried, but that's we don't need to talk about where my brain is at today. It's been a doozy of a week and my editing of this episode is going to be insane. And I think my listeners are going to all unsubscribe the moment this episode comes out because they're going to be like, Matt, you've lost the plot. <laughs> I, no, I, I totally understand. I'm, I'm with you right there right now. Yes. Uh, Marcus is very busy, everyone. He has an opera that is happening. So we are very booked and blessed that he's here with us for the amount of time that he is here with us. And because time is of the essence, I'm just going to dive right in elbow deep. Marcus, when were you first exposed to Carolina Change? Um, Like a lot of people coming of age when it came out, I saw it at the um, Tony performance. And Mm. I was like, what? This sounds janky as hell. Like, why does she sound busted? Her vocals are, you know, are shredded and fried. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ooh, like people like this. People think this is good. And so it really wasn't until I got into grad school. Um, and one of the, I, I went to the graduate musical theater uh, writing program at NYU. And uh, cycle 22, for those of you who would like to know. Um, <laughs> and, Anyone looking for receipts? You know, and when I went there, uh, we had a bunch of books next to normal you know the colored museum madame butterfly like everything you know proof you know just everything you can think of that was out like the last decade and a half i was looking at and one of the books that we're looking at because you know we're looking at the future of musical theater is form and carolina change has a very unique form Mm. um and so 
I sat with it and I read it. So I didn't like, I didn't do, a lot of people do, they see the show and they, they experience it. I read through the play, the, the, through the libretto, and I came back to it again, read through it with music. And then I was making my way to Toft, at, you know, at uh, the- uh, Lincoln Center Library, yeah. Lincoln Center Library. And, uh, and I, I sat through it and I watched it that way. And um, it, it kind of it became apparent to me that uh, not only is this one of the best musicals uh, of the last 25 years, but it's probably people will argue with me to, uh, you know, like they will argue with me from hell to high work with this. But um, I think this is Tony Kushner's best work. Yeah, I, I think the only reason I would argue with you is I, I've. But it's my emotional connection to Angels in America is so insane. That said, it's hard to talk about it with Angels in America because Angels in America now has become such like sacred text that all productions of it now have lost any humor or energy or heat. It's just so like we are doing Angels in America. I'm like, bitch, the show is funny. Get can you like can you put the gay back in Angels in America, please? Also, and I'm gonna sound. This is gonna sound like you know like i'm standing on a soapbox but i also feel that like um it also feels the the more and more i've seen different productions of angels american i'm including the uh the recent broadway um outing of it with andrew garfield and nathan lane but it feels like a story written by a gay white man um and and through that lens um you know, when you're when you're looking, you know, it's deeper than that. It's, it's just American. <laughs> it's a masterwork. But when you um, when you look at like how it's been kind of co-opted mm-hmm. by uh, the gay movement, you know, the gay rights movement, um, it really does feel kind of in line with a lot of like those narratives that kind of like look at the plight of the AIDS epidemic and you know and its ramifications on the white body. Mm-hmm. And while I guess I like angel, uh, why I like. Uh, Carolina change it looks at struggle especially like black liberation and black you know, black struggle mm-hmm. in America through it's not through police brutality it's not through um slavery it's through this like this lens of like being in a basement it's a very just it's a, it's a very different way of looking at freedom and freedom struggle uh, yeah. in America in, in a way that I just feel that like uh is very nuanced it's uh it's uh and it, it's not it doesn't feel like like it's a Jewish story. It doesn't feel like it's a black story. It, it's giving you all the cultures. It's giving everything essentially that he's, you know, that, that that's very you know the, uh, symbolic or emblematic of uh, Tony Kushner's work, his canon, and like yeah. the things he talks about. But it's doing it through this lens, and it's it's you know it's it's great. Yeah, what was what you were touching on, which I think is very important to say, because we, we're not talking about angels. We are talking about Caroline. Yeah. Caroline. Caroline is a is a narrower lens than angels like angels is covering so many topics oh, and because it, and caroline is, has much more narrow focus which allows more details to come through which is what i think yeah. makes it feel that much more uh well thought out and complex than uh some might come to angels also that last revival of angels not a fan not a fan of andrew garfield's prior I said it out loud. I've said it many times. What? Okay. I hated okay. his prior, but that's not, that's a story for another day. That's a story for another day. Yes. Uh, you know who I didn't hate was literally everyone in the original production of Carolina change. And the more I've read and listened to these sort of 
gestation of this show, the more it makes sense that it is so insightful the way it is. Because this show is, this show should be the poster child for what a collaboration is. Because everyone who worked on it brought something to the table and everything was included. So the example I'll give is, you know, we we have all the inanimate objects that uh, you know, have personality in our in our beings. And it was always Tony Kushner's idea that the objects were going to be characters. Mm-hmm. In his mind, he goes, Caroline is lonely. She works in the basement all day. She she would sort of start to imagine that the objects would sing with her. And George C. Wolf was like, I don't understand. The way Tony Kushner describes it, like for two years while they're sort of working on it with uh, Janine DeSori, George C. Wolf goes, I don't understand it. I'm, that's my best George C. Wolf impression. He's like, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Um, <laughs> and then one day he sort of comes in and he goes, I think I figured out how, a way into this. And he said, the, the characters of the objects, they are going to be the spirits of slaves from Louisiana who have died. And their spirit now has sort of uh been reborn into these objects and we're going to channel the their energies with each item and when you look at the original production way that uh, Kapathia Jenkins was dressed it is very uh-huh. sort of regal uh you know tribal garments and uh and it's also it, it's different generations of African Americans because then the radio yeah. is very much like the Supremes and uh it was important to Paul Tazewell the costume designer that it was like the Supremes before they became mainstream so it, yeah. it's a little more of a rough look and then Janine DeSori talks about they're in rehearsals and they bring Hope Clark in as their choreographer and Hope Clark's like I don't know a way into this and she goes well what if the washing machine is more sensual she goes what if like the radio is a little more antagonistic and like they break through the wall and so then they start rewriting the radio to co- uh, to complement that i'm like that's collaboration because there's yeah. what their idea was and then someone brings something new with their experience and we have you know we've got men women straight people gay people black uh, creatives white creatives like everyone bringing their takes and everyone's sort of melding together to create this work together which is why it feels so natural and human uh, and so it's just like, I'm, I'm going on a tangent, but listening to that, to them talk about it, so listen to Hope Clark and then George C. Wolf and Tanya and then Janine and Tony talk about like how certain things came to be. I'm like, that's what it should always be. Like, I, I hate yeah. the, I hate the auteur narrative of like, it's one person's singular vision and they saw it yeah. and like, it all was planted out because so often so many things get swept under the rug because they're not taking in points from anyone else. And yeah. Yeah, so that's, I don't know, that, that's just something I wanted to bring up with this show. Let's get into how we got ourselves some Carolina change. So after Millie, we sort of discussed the career trajectory of Janine Tesori, right? She became a music director, a music arranger, a music producer. She worked in Nashville for many years. She uh, did national tours and Broadway musicals as a music director. She famously arranged the music in How to Succeed. Violet was the first musical she wrote that got her some attention in the theater industry. It was not her first musical period. That was Galileo. But Violet was when people in the industry were starting to take 
notice of her. Unfortunately, Violet only ran for about a month at Playwrights Horizons, which seats about 200 people. So, you know, best case scenario, 6,000 people saw Violet. So not everyone was aware of what she could do. Specifically, Tony Kushner and George C. Wolfe. They became aware of Janine DeSori's talents when they went to Lincoln Center Theater, the Vivian Beaumont, to see a summer revival in 1998 of Twelfth Night, starring Helen Hunt and Paul Rudd, directed by my boy, Nicholas Heitner. And that production was a big sellout because it had Helen Hunt, who had just won an Oscar for As Good As It Gets in it, and Paul Rudd, who was becoming a rising movie star. But one of the things, the two things that people really talked about with that production were the set design by Bob Crowley and the original songs that Janine DeSori composed for the show. And it ended up being Janine's first Tony nomination for Best Original Score. And it's very rare that someone gets nominated for Best Score for their work on a play. It was very rare. It was especially rare then. It's still rare today, but it's a little more... We, we've seen it a bit more lately, especially in the last two or three seasons, as we've had fewer original scores and more jukebox musicals. Uh, plays have been included in score as a way to fill out the category. But that was a year, you know, she was up against Parade. And it's pretty impressive that she was able to get a nomination for that. And that is what got Tony Kushner and George C. Wolfe's attention towards her writing. Now, some of you may be asking, who are Tony Kushner and George C. Wolfe? First, you know what I'm going to say, get educated, you uncultured fucks. But let me be the one to educate you today. Let's start with Tony Kushner, who is the book writer and lyricist of Caroline or Change. Kushner uh, was born in Manhattan in 1956 to Sylvia Kushner, a bassoonist, and William David Kushner, a clarinetist. They moved to Lake Charles, Louisiana, soon after Kushner was born, where he uh, spent his entire childhood. He went undergrad at Columbia University, where he received a BFA in medieval studies, like you do. And then he went to graduate school at Tisch at NYU to pursue a degree in directing. And he worked as a director for a while. Uh, he was also experimenting with writing at the same time. And the story that Tanya Pinkin says is that while he was dabbling with being a writer, what kind of sealed the deal for him was, you know, okay, if I'm going to be a writer, let's see if I can come up with some ideas for works. And he wrote down five different ideas for stories and tried to flush them out and said, if I can come up with five that I'm proud of, I'll go be a writer. One of which was the origins for Carolina Change. Kushner's first breakthrough piece, I say first breakthrough, there's no such thing as like multiple breakthroughs, but the thing that got him noticed on the New York theater scene was a play called A Bright Room Called Day. It had a revival in the public a few years ago. Uh, this play did not necessarily land with a lot of critics, specifically Frank Rich, who thought it was kind of too up its own ass for its own good, very uh, inventive, very intelligent, but ultimately unmoving. At the same time that A Bright Room Called Day was being performed around Manhattan in multiple off-Broadway locations before it had its debut at the public in 1990, Kushner was commissioned by the Eureka Theater in San Francisco to write a new play. This play became Angels in America. Now, there's a long history with Angels in America, and I'm not going to get into it because it is there are so many things to discuss. If you really want to know all the intimate details of Angels in America, you can read the amazing oral history book, The World Only Spins Forward. I've read it three times. It's insane. I love every single page of it. But needless to say, Angels in America pre uh, premiered at the Eureka Theater, 
before then going to the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles and then having its London premiere at the National Theater where it exploded and then came to America on Broadway at the Walter Kerr in 1993. Millennium Approaches premiered. It won the Tony. It won the Pulitzer. Perestroika premiered six months later to not quite as ecstatic reviews, but still very strong reviews and winning the Tony for Best Play uh, that season, running for about a year and a half and touring the country. The problem is that how do you follow up Angels in America? You kind of don't. Uh, You just have to keep trying new things and seeing what comes of it. It is such a crippling amount of success that the pressure to do something just as good is, you know, insurmountable. And if you're Tony Kushner, you know, you also blow past deadlines. I mean, it took him like, I think, four years to complete part one and like six years to complete part two of Angels in America. The man loves to break his deadlines, which is why it takes so many years for things to come uh, out of the woodwork for him. That said, he did start working on it on Carolina Change pretty soon after Angels in America. He was commissioned by the San Francisco Opera to write a uh, a new work with Bobby McFerrin, who's a venerated African-American folk jazz artist. And Kushner had one idea that McFerrin did not like, but then he brought him his first draft of Carolina Change. And when I say first draft, I mean, it was sort of like a script slash poem. It was written in verse, you know, it read like lyrics, but they didn't really read like songs. It all just sort of read like recitative in a weird way. And it was pretty thorough, you know, single space, double-sided and all that stuff. And McFerrin really liked it and basically got around to composing one piece of Carolina Change and then abandoned it and said, I, I have no interest in doing this anymore. And Kushner had to wait a few years to get the rights back before he could work on it again. And he gives it to George C. Wolf, who had, ju- who had worked with him on Angels in America, like I said. And George C. Wolf said, this isn't an opera. This is a musical. What you need are singing actors. You need the emotional potency of this piece to really resonate with audiences. And that's not going to happen if you cast opera singers. You need actors. If you want to know who George C. Wolf is, he is, in my opinion, one of, if not the greatest living directors on Broadway right now. He does not bat a thousand or a hundred. I don't know sports terms. He does not have a perfect track record. Let me put it that way. But literally nobody does. I, if you were to throw a name out to me of a director, I would throw back at you at least three things they've done that I think are not good. So yes, George C. Wolf has not always done great things, but he's done some fascinating things. He had his breakout in New York City with a play that he wrote because he's both a playwright and a director. It was called The Colored Museum. And it was sort of, I don't want to say variety show. It was a series of vignettes that were about the African-American experience, uh, starting with slavery, going through you know the civil rights movement, talking about uh, Black artists in pop culture, uh, modern day Americans, and you know African-Americans in you know, the army and, and how it, all that changes. And there's, there's actually a really great one. You can watch, you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. Actually, there's a great one with a woman who is going on a date and she is choosing between two wigs, which one she wants to use. And there are two actresses playing the wigs and they are both telling her to pick them for reasons X, Y, and Z. And 
It is very humorous while also being extremely poignant. The actress who, the, the character who's picking the wigs says absolutely nothing. She's just reacting to everything. But it is, it manages to make a point while still having fun. And that's really hard to do. And that's something that George C. Wolf is very capable of doing. Uh, with the Colored Museum, he then uh, writes and directs the musical Jelly's Last Jam, co-starring Tanya Pinkins. Remember that name. And that was his Broadway debut as a director and as a writer. And that was a commercial and critical success, which then got him the job for Angels in America, which was, again, a critical and commercial success. He then becomes the artistic director of the public theater. He does works like Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk. He does some uh, works at the Delacorte, like the, uh, the Tempest with, I believe, Patrick Stewart that are a huge sellout. You know, the man is fire. He has more recently done Shuffle Along, which is one of my favorite things I've ever seen. Uh, he did The Iceman Cometh with Denzel Washington. He did the play Gary with Nathan Lane, which, while wild, was very worth seeing. So George C. Wolf tells Tony Kushner this is a musical. They go see Twelfth Night. They love the score. Tony Kushner sends his material to Janine Tesori and says, I'd really like you to compose this. Janine says, thank you, but no. Then what happened was Tony Kushner and Janine Tesori start working on another musical. They get hired to write a musical version of the movie Don Juan DeMarco, which was a movie in the 90s starring Marlon Brando as a psychiatrist whose patient Johnny Depp thinks he is the reincarnation of Don Juan. You know, perfect fodder for musical theater. And they work on it. And two things, two things became clear. The first is this isn't going to work, this show. Neither one of us really likes doing this. The second thing that became clear is they really liked working together. And so Tony said, please, will you look at the packet of Caroline or change again? And she did. And the first thing she realized was she could make a song out of the bus. Like, as I was mentioning the books, and I'm thinking of, like, just kind of, like, the, I, the things I, I'm just looking at all of their works. And, like, mm -hmm. you can definitely see kind of a through line of, like, where this person's, like, where this person's idea went here. There's, this concept went there. Mm -hmm. um, like, I mean, like, I'm familiar with, like, the Colored Museum. You mm -hmm. know, and there's a lot of similarities to, like, the objects becoming, like, you know, as people. Yeah, um, the, I, I think I mentioned in my preamble, the, there's the wig vignette in Colored yes. Museum, right? Yeah, I love that scene. Yeah. I think that scene's amazing. It's, I mean, it's, Colored Museum, talk about funny. It's one of those pieces where I'm like, how doesn't this like, piece get, like, revived? You know, mm -hmm. it's like a piece that kind of, like, college is kind of touched now, like, mm -hmm. if, you know, if they're willing to touch it. But, like, that, it, it, it kind of colors just about everything he has done after that show mm -hmm. um and you see it with like yes yeah, like with like, like the wig in that 
um, and uh, and um, and uh, in that and like and how we're seeing it kind of like come through uh, with Carolina Change. I also like what I love about um, what he, what they do with the uh, with the narrative is like just like uh, it is looking at the the bus driver, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> and how that becomes a character. Um, how the moon, you know, like as they're waiting for, you know, how that becomes a character. Um, and some some backstory about me, by the way, um, is uh, the reason why it is such a personal story for me is that like um, my grandmother was um, a maid. Uh, she came, she traveled north uh, the day that um, JFK passed away. That he was that he was murdered. Yeah. Um, and, and he moved, and so she was on the bus. <laughs> like as mm. it happened. Mm-hmm. And she would wind up working with a Jew- for a Jewish family um, as a maid. Uh, she would be called, uh, you know, a nigger, you know, <laughs> and she would leave, you know. It's mm-hmm. very similar, like the story of that, you know, yeah. it's very similar to mine. Um, and like a lot of the, uh, a lot of the frustration she felt at that time, she was about the age, um, because this is, you know, the, um, you know the early 60s and it's very different down in, uh, in the south uh that we you know but she would be uh, a little older than, uh, than m um you know uh, at that time um mm-hmm. but that, you know but that was her story and like working in houses uh so that's why it's so personal to me <laughs> in mm-hmm. my journey but uh in terms of like like looking at like just their aesthetics and like what they brought to the table i'm gonna be really candid and very honest with you janine's story is not my favorite <laughs> um you know uh and it's not because um i don't think she's uh talented like fun home is my jam you know but there are moments where like i've seen violet i've listened to violet you know mm-hmm. seen, and it's just it's um it there there are things that like that that um you know you can argue like she doesn't they're not songs they're not struck you know you can, you can argue those things uh, about her work but there's something about uh, one of my favorite pieces in all of musical theater um, is in this piece. Um, it's a Sunday morning. Mm. Um, it's a song right before Lot's Wife. Yes. And it's a motif that she does throughout the entire um, about throughout, throughout the entire show. And it never becomes a a song. But that motif is probably the most memorable thing of Carolina Change. It's like there's this um there's a uh, I, I want to say it's like an, it's 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 like there's horns <laughs> and there's like a little bit of um i want to say it's like an organ but mm-hmm. there's a pipe organ but there's like but there's a, it's, it's, it's just kind of cuts through and it's and it to me it is one of the uh most magical things i've ever heard in musical theater and and every time no matter like what i've, I've saw the recent um the recent uh revival mm-hmm. of it at, um with uh with sharon clark uh and it uh it's one of the most memorable things i've ever seen in my life uh, i've heard of my life um and uh it it to me, I honestly feel that that when it comes to musical theater, what she does with this show, in terms of t- talking about contributions, is that we don't get a lot of motifs anymore. Mm-hmm. Not really. <laughs> it's just song, yeah. song, song. It becomes a, a spin cycle of like our playlist. And uh, this is really the, one of the last shows that we really hear musical motifs throughout, you know, in a musical. Yeah. Um, used, used in this way. Because I don't, I don't there's something like that in Fun Home, but it's not as as Fun Home has uh, thematic motifs, but not character motifs. If that makes sense, yeah. and yes. Carolina Change has both. Carolina Change also for me, it's one of the first Broadway scores I can think of 
where they have genres for each character in a way that exactly. um, if uh, like, are you familiar with Great Comet, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812-ish? Mm. No, Ish. not really. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> we don't have to get into it, but, but that is a score that, that mashes up a million different genres, right? And yeah. to its credit, it never feels super clashy, but that, I mean, it owes its existence in a lot of ways to Carolina Change because I remember when this show came out, a lot of the critics were like, I don't know what to make of this score. Like it's R&B, it's gospel, it's folk, it's country, it's, you know, Yiddish music. What is this? I'm like, it's everything. It's all of it mashed up. But like, there's a reason why like Rose Stopnik's music when she's introduced is yeah. so different from everyone else's because she's not from the South. She's from New York. So her exactly. music is very pattery Sondheim-y. Like we have, you know, we have that whole opening section, which I understand, like not obviously Janine is not for everybody. Um, yeah. I think even if someone doesn't necessarily like this show, and I know a lot of people who don't like this show and saw this most recent revival, which hot take, I wasn't the biggest fan of this revival. Um, Ooh, well, we can go into it in a bit. Yeah. It also comes from the fact that I have known and loved the original for so long. It's like such a part of my DNA that like, it's, I now have to start getting used to new interpretations now that it's starting to be done a little more. I'm like, okay, yeah. now I got to <laughs> start getting ready for other people's versions of this because I've known the wolf version for so long. Uh, yeah. That said, you have to at least objectively recognize the scope of this score, of, of all the things that she does, oh, yeah. that he does. Yeah. Um, and like the, just the opening sequence alone, where, yeah. you know, we have the rhythmic sensuality of the washing machine going into the Supremes like music of the radio. Then we have Noah's childlike do, 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 do. And then we get into the dryer where it, and it going into, I got four kids, which is some of the most like guttural music I think I've ever heard, especially the way that Tanya yeah. Pinkins sings it, the way she does the hit. It comes from such yeah. a source of pain and exhaustion, which is mm -hmm. something where um, we're going all over the place. Welcome to the podcast, Marcus. But <laughs> uh, I so I think part of the reason why I didn't love the most recent revival and I want I was like I went in third mm -hmm. row orchestra center. I was like ready to be like, I'm going to piss myself from the moment it begins to the moment it ends. <laughs> and I and I did. I liked parts of it. I think yeah. what I what I missed from it was it felt a little studied to me because and part mm -hmm. of this comes from the fact that it is a cast that did not work on the material from its inception. It is a British male director. So like the American experience is not something he knows. It's something he's had to study. Yeah. Um, whereas George C. Wolf, like it's in him. And there was also a poetry about the original that I really liked. I also remind me in a minute mm -hmm. to talk about the design of the original compared to the yeah. design of the revival, because I, so just gotcha. remind me, because I'm going to forget about it in 30 seconds. Uh, but Sharon D. Clark's uh, Caroline, for me, felt a little more calculatedly mean than Tanya's. And Caroline is a protagonist that is difficult for a lot of people to get on board with. Because, yeah. like, I remember um, I, I, 
had coffee with someone the other day who had seen the revival and he knew the show pretty well. And he was going with a friend of his to see the revival who didn't know the show at all. And she goes, I feel like we're about to go see the help, the musical. And he goes, this is anti the help. Like the (laughs) reason, What made the help like be like a $200 million grossing phenomenon is why Carolina change is not accepted because white people want Caroline to be like all knowing and, and sweet and, you know, offer advice. A magical like, Negro. Exactly. <laughs> and she's like, no, I'm tired and, and sad and angry. Like, fuck uh, everyone leave me alone and just fuck off. And it's yeah. hard for a lot of audiences to accept that. Like Rose is weirdly like a lot of white audiences, uh gateway character. Cause all she wants is Caroline to like her. And the fact that Karen Caroline doesn't and doesn't have to, it, it, it like it causes Rose to kind of spiral all the time. Uh, and I think a lot of uh, audiences don't get that. I had another friend who I thought was going to love it. And he was like, I just really wanted the, the Gelmans to give Caroline a house at the end. I'm like, that is not what this show is. How did you misunderstand the assignment so hard? Yeah, I know. I, what I love about this show, well, I, so I was uh, seeing Clyde's and I had just seen, mm. um, you know, the, uh, Caroline, the recent revival of Caroline mm-hmm. right before. And uh, there was this p- these people in front of me and they were talking about the show. And I this, they were one guy, he was like, oh, I just didn't like it. I mean, you know, she doesn't like really change at the end. I said, what? Caroline does change at the end. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a whole song about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, she changed, like, her change is that she decides to like slant, like to close herself off even more because mm-hmm. the reality is, it's like they either starve <laughs> if she doesn't work as a maid, you know, because mm-hmm. they're not high. This is the early 60s. They're not going to hire a black woman to be, you know, to, you know, to for this job over here. Mm-hmm. You know, she's going to stay a maid. And her their, their best chance at, like, economic prosperity is that her children go to school and that they try to break from that path. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the change. Her change is, like, her sacrifice. You know, like, it's actually very, you know, heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and but but uh, and and people don't get that, and they just think that like she's supposed to just have this epiphany where it's just, you know where it just she melts into like you know the, you know the, the ice melts, and it's like that's not what it is. I also yeah. um to your to your point earlier about like the different genres of music. Um, I want to say that like uh, while I I, I I can say that like you know yes, Janine's uh, story is not my favorite, but what I will say that like no other composer other than like what i think is kirsten child uh who has written blue black girls chester chameleon skin has written bella she's written a bunch of musicals she's a very off broadway <laughs> but um her music she does what she does very good and very well um is that she takes characters and she, every character has their own genres mm-hmm. of music um there are other people there are other composers i'm about to go on the short tangent as well you know like just you know we're seeing it but we're seeing it in different ways and different forms now with mm-hmm. like character driven um music steven universe for example every character on that show has a different instrument this person is chip tune this person is uh is piano you know music this person mm-hmm. over here is hip-hop and you know they're using this this chord over here um and yeah, I think that like, Kirsten Childs is like the only composer I can think of where everybody has a different instrument. Every person is a, is a different um, element and um, a different genre of music. And they're bringing that to, uh, to the, you know, to their, 
works. And then every, and just like Janine's stories, uh, the reception of this piece when, you know, in 2003, 2004, mm-hmm. when the original musical was up and today, um, it, they're, you know, the reception for both artists uh, with regards to work is that like, but what is the music? Is, is it, it's not musical theater, it's not gospel, it's not R&B, it's not rock, like, what is it? Um, and I think that like, we need more of that. <laughs> those are the musicals that I like the best. Um, you know, for those, you know, listening, Passing Strange, Hair, like that's the kind of stuff that got me into musicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rent, you know. <laughs> um, and so, which is why I naturally gravitate to a show like this. Yeah. I leave another quarter. I leave it in the bleach cup. I leave another quarter. Two quarters in the bleach cup. I leave on me. take a second to talk about a few things two major plot points in the show that are one is discussed very much throughout the piece the other one is more sort of spoken about in uh in whispers almost in the background i would say then i also want to talk about uh, some of our cast of characters first of all the plot point that is discussed the most is the assassination of JFK, President JFK, President Kennedy, if you will. And what what's interesting is to talk about with it is like that the ripple what's interesting is that the ripple effect that that has it is that that moment is the first major change that the show promises, right? You know, it, it is the first time that we see these characters really get thrown by a major life event and the ripple effect is how everyone responds to it. You know, when it's first announced by the bus, Caroline and Dottie both have their, you know, shock, and then there's utter despair from the Gelmans. And then Dottie has her bit in the song JFK, where she admits that he did not necessarily do as much as he had promised to do. You know, President Kennedy promised to help African Americans, and he did not necessarily do what he promised. One could argue he didn't have as much time as he should have, given the fact that he died. But also, yeah, he, he part of what got him elected was the black vote, and he did not necessarily follow through. Now, to go even further than that, we have the character of Emmy, Caroline's daughter, and her response to it is utter, you know, nonchalance. Who cares? He didn't do anything for us. This is, you know, a drop in the bucket. The other major change, the other major plot point that's only kind of talked about in whispers in the show is the Confederate statue. In the most recent revival, the image that greeted the audience was a Confederate statue that was in the town of Lake Charles, Louisiana. And as we've been seeing for the last, you know, two years, all these statues that, you know, many people in the South who gravitate towards them let's say for lack of a better term claim it's to honor their heritage to you know remember the past because we have to remember where we were if we know where we're going that is true on a thematic conceptual level 
but not in actuality with these statues, obviously. These statues are a blatant reminder of the slavery that the South was fighting for in the 1800s, That they a war that they lost, by the way. And while all the white members of Louisiana probably see this statue and think, ah, the good old days. They think about Gone with the Wind and they think about the Old South and the glory that once was. All the African-American people in that area, they will see this statue and it's kind of a, it, it, no, it's not kind of, it is a reminder to them of remember where you came from, what once was, because who's to say we can't ever go back there again? We're, you know, you are free, but you're not free. And what happens is the statue goes missing and no one really knows who took it. Now, Dottie is very happy about this. She thinks that this is a great political moment. Caroline is very perturbed. She does not want uh, black people and white people to mix because she thinks it's going to lead to trouble. What we end up finding out, of course, is that Emmy was part of the group of kids that took the statue down. We find this out at the end. And I love that when Act 2 began of that revival, the statue was missing. There was a uh, the, like bust for it was there, but the statue was not. It was a great reminder to the audience of what was at stake here. They's agitated, Johnny Rebs decapitated, dredge the bayou lakefront to trawler spotlights, minesweepers, oh uh-huh, the whole shebang, bloodhounds baying, making noise, they said it was hoodlums done it. They means colored boys. But they ain't said who? No, not a clue. I'll tell you what, whoever did it, good for them. I hope they burnt it in a trash incinerator, fed it to an alligator. Oh, ugly thing, ugly thing, the South's defender. Uh, hey, crack a joke. Lee surrendered the thing. I want to talk for a second about these cast of characters a little more in depth than uh, Marcus and I did. And we did talk about them in depth, but I want to just give them each a little separate shout out. Obviously, we have the main character of Caroline Thibodeau, who is in her late 30s. We find out she is divorced. She married, you know, a man who was not good for her. He ended up not being able to find work. He became an alcoholic. We discover in a flashback song that he hit her. And when he hit her a second time, she beat him and then he ran away, proving that Caroline is stronger than Noah's dad. What's interesting with Caroline is that, you know, let's look at sort of how each character is introduced to us in the show. The beginning of the show is Caroline entering the basement, singing to herself and saying very bluntly, nothing happens underground in Louisiana because there's only underwater, which is a which is an interesting image to think about because she's literally correct. There is... A great deal of water in the in the soil of Louisiana, and, and it's discussed a couple of times, and Noah, Noah even mentions it at the end of the show. Uh, why do we have a basement? Underground is underwater here. That is literally true for Caroline. When she goes into the basement, she goes underwater. But also, Caroline is a woman who is drowning. You know, the radio says about her that her life is burying her alive. And so, by having her literally be underwater, it is a perfect encapsulation of where she's sort of at in her life sleepwalking through a w and having a sense of awareness of that while also in such pain and despair 
of knowing that she's sleepwalking to her watery grave in a way. And and we see that she lashes out at a lot of people every time that they kind of get too close to the real uh, raw problem with Caroline, which is that she wants to do more, but she doesn't think she's able to. That change is too much for her. Change of any kind is too much for her. She just wants to be left alone, but she also doesn't want to be a maid anymore, but she doesn't know what she wants to do. It's interesting, if you read interviews and you listen to interviews with Tony Kushner and Janine Tesori, Tony Kushner's original idea was to have Caroline be illiterate. And when George C. Wolfe came on, he said, absolutely not. I will not have an illiterate black woman on the stage. My theory is that because the role of Caroline was inspired by a real person in Tony Kushner's life, he took as much as he knew from that woman and then imbued it into the role of Caroline. This is... You know, he's gone on record to say that this is his most autobiographical work. So much of it parallels his own life. So it's hard to look at the role of Caroline and think of her as, you know, sort of a symbol or a theme. She's very much just a very flawed, broken woman. And how she lashes out at people always circles back to what's really hurting her. When we meet Dottie, who is a fellow maid and one a former friend of Caroline, you know, Dottie's going to night school. Dottie has a boyfriend. Dottie's very happy. Dottie sort of has the potential to achieve more of the American dream than Caroline ever will. And any time Caroline is reminded of that, she lashes out. She thinks that Dottie has changed, that Dottie thinks she's too good for her now. She's dressing up, you know, in bobby socks and, and you know, dressing younger than she really is. Caroline, why you huff at me? You never used to be that way all of a sudden so unfriendly. I ain't never done no harm to you. I don't like the way you do. You change. Gal your age wearing bobby socks and saddle shoes acting like I don't know what all. Everyone down to the college, everyone wear these shoes. And I don't see that you got called to. You the one that changed. You changed. Good flip What's underneath all of that is a sense of jealousy and bitterness that Dottie gets to do that. Even if Caroline doesn't necessarily approve of it, Dottie has the option to do it, whereas Caroline does not. Caroline has made her bed and she's not able to leave it anymore. She has children. She has a job. She's sort of wallowed in debt. There's no crawling back out for her. Now, Someone in this show does not look at Caroline that way. There's Noah. And Marcus and I will discuss this a bit more when I get back to his section. Noah is eight years old, and he worships Caroline. When we first meet him, we get this sort of childlike lullaby. It's very sweet. It's very simple. And it's also a little trepidatious. He enters the basement to see Caroline. And while he does think the world of her, he's also aware that she is mean, that she is strong, that she doesn't really give him anything resembling kindness, at least in a way that we would think of, in a parental or maternal way. You know, Caroline is not, you know, a mammy. She is not Hattie McDaniel and Gone with the Wind. She is not the, uh, you know, all-knowing, all-loving character who just loves Noah unconditionally and gives him support to do better into the world. She doesn't care about him, really, the one kindness she does is give him the one cigarette she smokes a day. She lets him light for her. Light me up. Don't suck in. I shouldn't let you do that, boy. When you grow up, don't smoke these things. Smoke rings. Smoke rings. Smoke 
tells me so, but I know daddy mustn't know. A secret her and me can share our daily cigarette. And that is sort of their one little connection, and he holds on to it with all the might in the world. We learn more about Noah as we learn more about other characters in his life. So I want to take another moment to then uh, reach out to our third major character, Rose Stopnik. The very first song, or sorry, the very first piece of music we hear Rose Stopnik sing is titled Caroline, There's Extra Food. First thing, uh, Rose constantly mispronounces Caroline's name and calls her Carolyn the entire show. This is not an intentional snub. She's not trying to be rude. She comes from New York. She's, she has different pronunciations of things. My assumption is that no one in her life up in New York is named Caroline. They're probably all named Carolyn, so she probably calls Caroline Carolyn. Rose's music with her intro is very different from everybody else. It's a little more urbane, Sondheim-esque even, and very kind of, not scattered, but uh, very nervous energy. Carolyn, there's extra food. Sweet stuffed cabbage cooked with brisket. It's nutritious iron. Vegetables bring it to your kids. Can't use none, Mrs. Gellin. My kids don't like it. They turn their noses up. The smell. And that's very representative of who Rose is. Rose wants to be liked. Rose is very talkative. Rose is running a mile a minute. Rose is very sad, and she's just looking for a connection anywhere. And when she sings to Caroline, you know, I have we have this extra food. Please bring this to your children. It is two things. It is a kind gesture that she is thinking of Caroline and offering her, you know, food for, for her kids. She says, you know, we have all this extra stuff. We don't want to throw it away. And, you know, please take it. You know, hopefully your kids can eat it. On the other hand, there's the kind of condescending idea of, well, it's our extra food. So you take it. You know, we we have just simply too much. And it would be and it would be more appropriate to not be wasteful. I don't think this is necessarily at the forefront of Rose's mind, but would she offer Caroline the food if she didn't have extra? If she had made, you know, enough for two people and Stuart and Noah didn't want any, would she offer Caroline to sit down with her and eat it? Probably not. Then again, Caroline wouldn't say yes if Rose had offered because Caroline is there to do a job and Rose is trying to make her become a friend. And Caroline is not having any of that. And we hear that in the opening scene with Rose. You know, Rose offers the food. Caroline very, I don't want to say rudely, very bluntly says, no, thank you. My kids don't like it. And if you listen to the way that Sharon D. Clark sing, uh, says the lines, it is a much more cold delivery. Whereas Tanya Pinkins is a little more matter of fact. They don't like it. And Sharon D. Clark is like, they don't like it. The smell. It's very uh, mean-spirited. Like, she's, like, making it a point to say it. The character of Stuart is Noah's father, obviously. And he is basically comatose this entire show. He is far removed. He is, you know, disassociating himself from everything going on around him. The first thing we ever hear Stuart sing after Caroline has told Noah that his mother has been swallowed up by God, that God eats people when they have cancer. It is his mother's test was cancer and Noah's test is his mother's dying. That is the test that God has given them both. 
Then comes in Stuart, who very bluntly sings, There is no God, Noah. And in between passages that he sings, he then plays on his clarinet. Stuart really best communicates with his clarinet. He doesn't do well talking to other people, especially to his son. Because when we come back to him later, Stuart can barely even remember what age Noah is and what grade he's in. You know, he says a whole year has gone past and I don't even know where we are anymore. And he doesn't really have that much interest in Noah. He has interest in, in hopefully Noah liking some of the things that he used to like as a child, thinking that might be a connection with him. But his son is very different than he is. He doesn't have the same interests. He gave up the cello. He doesn't really care about music so much. He doesn't want a chemistry set in the way that Stuart wanted when he was a child. He doesn't know how to relate to his son. And the only way that he can really think of parenting him is to sort of just be purely alone with him against the world. But that's not the way the world works. And so he rushes into a marriage with Rose in just so that way Noah can have someone. And so Stuart doesn't have to be alone with Noah. The last two characters I want to talk about are Dottie and Emmy. Dottie is not a major character in the show. She sort of pops in and out. I've already sort of discussed a bit the dynamic between her and Caroline. Dottie is sort of a... Uh, transitional character between Caroline and her daughter Emmy. She's a little younger than Caroline, but she's a bit older than Emmy. And she has a lot more of Emmy's progressive political views while also understanding all of the work that went into getting her and Emmy and Caroline this far. And she is very perceptive. She is very uh, empathetic, but she is also sort of on her way to another place that does not include Caroline. And she would like to include Caroline, but Caroline is very aware that Dottie will be doing better than she is. Not a lot better, but enough that she will be in a different spot in her life than Caroline ever hopes to be. And when we meet her, it is a very casual, laid-back you know, bluesy kind of music. So we understand that Dottie is very at peace with herself and very happy with her lot in life. And that is something that not many characters in Caroline and Change, or Caroline, and that's not something many characters in Caroline or Change are. Not everyone is really happy with what's going on with their lives. So Dottie is, you know, a very specific case in this show. The last character I want to just briefly mention is Emmy. Emmy is Caroline's second oldest child, the oldest that's still living at home as Larry is off in the Navy. Emmy is wildly political, wildly progressive, very headstrong. And when we meet Emmy, she has snuck out of the house where she was supposed to be watching her younger brothers. She went out to meet some friends. So we already know that Emmy is rebellious. We know that Emmy you know, goes against her mother all the time and is a child, but is a child who is unafraid. And when she shows up on stage, Caroline has come home for the day and is listening to very smooth, very relaxed blues music. And Emmy changes the channel on the radio and gets to a much hotter, peppier, you know, Beat. You remember fun mama out at the parking lot alongside the A and double with a bunch of us talking, dancing to the radio. President's dead. I know the radio play music anyway, just some old white man. Sent Larry off to Vietnam. Sorry, he dead. I ain't killed him. I'm and 
what we see is that Emmy is filled with joy. She's filled with life. But there is a tunnel vision about her. The best, So y'all are going to, you know, roll your eyes at me here. But the best way to sort of describe it in terms of how Emmy's strengths are also her weaknesses is the character of Ariel in Little Mermaid. Economic storytelling here, guys. We've talked about this before, but I'm going to say it again. Why do I love Ariel? Well, when we first meet Ariel, we see that she is headstrong, she is focused, she's brave, she goes for what she wants. But in the scene where she finds the fork, the dinglehopper, she cannot see the shark behind her. She doesn't recognize that there's danger around her. She's just too focused on what it is that she wants. And that's ultimately what does her in, because she's so focused on getting legs, on being with Eric, that she decides to turn a blind eye to what is a terrible deal with Ursula to give up her singing voice, her ability to physically speak, if not necessarily, you know, converse. And that is the same thing with Emmy. We see that Emmy's bravery is and her uh, complete sense of self is so infectious. And it's a nice sort of change of pace after, you know, a... 10 15 minute section of the show that's been so languid emmy comes on stage and just is fire but that fire will eventually come back and bite her in the ass as i will discuss with marcus shortly i'd like to know how you come to feel you know so much about what is real I wanted to go, double back, go back because you want to talk about the design elements mm-hmm. of of uh, the original production mm-hmm. and this production, and like also just why do you why didn't you like <laughs> why didn't you like this show? I thought I thought Sharon B. Clark was phenomenal as as Caroline. Again, it just comes down to like what I have known with the show for so long, and like how my brain has processed it, yeah. and just what's been effective for me. Uh, I was able to. I just have always been able to gravitate towards Tanya's. Uh, Caroline more because I could see where her meanness was coming from like I understood it and I and 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 it just felt more um, engaging to me it's not that I like did not it's not that I thought like Sharon was bad it was Sharon's interpretation was not as effective for me is all Um, there were moments when Sharon would sort of lay in wait. I called it sort of like a brooding shark. Like she was just, she was like just waiting for someone to walk by so she could bite their leg. And the, and there is there is an energy about that that is very exciting because you're like, what's she going to do? But there was a pain to Tanya's Caroline where I just want, like anytime someone came into that basement to talk to her, I wanted to run on that stage and be like, leave her alone. Like she <laughs> she doesn't want to talk to you. And, and, and not only that, but like, with her children, the way she, ha- the, what I, something I, I love about the show. And I think part of the reason why I, why I was not in love with this revival. I love that the show, no one is a hundred percent a hero, but no one's a hundred percent a villain for every, <laughs> for every macro or microaggression that everyone causes. There is a reason behind it. That's not necessarily of ill intent, but it doesn't stop the fact that what they did is still an aggression. Does that make sense? Like the yeah. character, so like the character of Rose, for example, and I actually liked uh, Casey Levy more than I thought I would, but I felt she was playing it a bit. I thought more than I thought I would. I thought really, she, I felt the opposite. <laughs> well, see, I think because I went in thinking she was going to be a little more like Poppy, and I thought she was 
a yeah. little more grounded. I thought she played it too much like a like a 1960s Karen. And I think the beauty of Rose is that, and now this actually ties into the design and the original staging. Everyone in Carolina Change is so lonely. Everyone is an island. And the mm-hmm. original design was very sparse and the staging was very sort of spread out to really kind of drive home the fact that like everyone in this play is on their own and they're just trying to connect. Rose especially. Rose is a stranger in a new land. She's married to a man who doesn't love her, who like is basically comatose. She's now having to parent this child that hates her on her own. Um, You know, we have that long distance call to her father and like, while her father loves her, her father's also kind of the worst. Uh, Like good political values, but just also like is kind of a douche and is pretty rude to his daughter. And like the one, and, you know, she marries Stuart, who is, you know, the husband of her best friend, Betty, who's now dead. And for all we know, you know, whenever she talked to Betty on the phone about life, I'm sure Betty talked about Caroline once or twice because we learned that Betty and Caroline actually got along when Betty was still alive. And so Rose probably thought to herself, oh, I'll have a friend here. Like if, if she liked Betty, she'll like me. And the fact that Caroline is does not engage with her the fact that and like and the only and caroline's the only other person that house really with rose the entire time so all rose wants is a connection like she just wants a friend and she doesn't know what she doesn't know and again and this is sort of like the the uh the not necessarily ill intent but it's still a microaggression the whole issue with the pocket change right and the like we'll think of this as your raise in Rose's mind, she's doing, she's killing two birds with one stone. She's teaching Noah the value of money while also giving Caroline the raise that she thinks she deserves, but also says, you know, we can't afford to give her the raise. Cut to Stuart is giving Noah a dollar fifty allowance. It's like, well, clearly the money is there. You're just, your values about where it should be going are not in line. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but so Rose is thinking she's doing a good thing. But on the other end, she's also... Um, patronizing Caroline with this and then it's also very insulting to you know as Caroline says I'm taking pennies from a baby but she does mm-hmm. need the money and yeah. Rose not meaning to does put a wedge in between Caroline and Noah uh, and Caroline with the family and there's you know that great scene in act two when she yeah. Rose doesn't realize she's going a step too far with the steward in the quarter uh, and you know, it, it, I the revival for me felt a little just too much like underlining all that subtext of like we need you all to understand now and like when the set came together for uh, no it just it was a little too obvious and I just really liked the fluid poetry of the original. I also think yeah. some of the costume designs of this revival are wild, but <laughs> but that's 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 something that a lot of people talk about. Anyway, that is my thing. Tell me things that you loved about this revival, please. Um. Huh. Oh, okay. Sorry, I talked for a Honestly, long time, so I'm sure no, you're no, like, no, no, no. no. Okay, so, so okay, I'm some probably unpopular opinions. Um, I liked. Uh, I think it's uh, the guy who wrote. Um, he wrote. Uh, oh, almost main John Cariani. John Cariani. I thought that he was a great. Like, I felt like, um, as as opposed to the original, mm-hmm. um, I felt that like he embodied like I felt that that was, I was watching. Um, uh, Tony Kushner's father on stage, mm-hmm. you know, um, I just felt like he, it was a very, like, it was a great performance. Um, I also, um, I thought that uh, her, 
her salts, you know, lots white. Um, mm. I thought that was like, you know, it, I thought it was phenomenal. <laughs> like it was. It, it was, a, it, it, was a, it was a moment where like it kind of like if you rather you like hated the show up until that point <laughs> like it was just it was just a tremendous moment um and it, it just like it made me it's, it's a really it's a great piece if you're like a singer looking to like study voice the voice yeah um i uh i actually like the, the three women together um the radio uh, oh i love personally i love the radio i was thinking of the um i was thinking of rose and and um my girl, my girl. Dottie. Oh, Emmy, Emmy, Dottie, and Caroline, or yeah, yeah, Dottie, Dottie, Caroline, and uh, and Emmy. Like the, the, Emmy, yeah. the three of them together. Like they're they're kind of like the way that they acted opposite mm-hmm. each other. Um, uh, I liked. Um, I can't. Okay, no one's gonna be the bus for me. Like no one's gonna be like Chuck Cooper is the bus. <laughs> it's Chuck. It's Chuck Cooper. Yeah, <laughs> he was great. But um, and I um, and I I okay what i did like about the set too is i like the, the 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 look and like what they did with the with the um the statue the statue was great i also really liked the turntable i'm a sucker for a turntable and when it's used well which i thought yeah. i don't think they used it well the entire time sometimes i'm like that we don't need it here but every now and then there'd be a moment like the way they used it in the hanukkah party where yes. you where you would be in the dining room then you'd be in the kitchen i thought that was used really well that was very smart um and I um I too did not I wasn't sure if I liked the the ending of like the the, the state you know the the uh the two parts of the houses coming together. It was, was on like, the nose what? for me. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I liked that either. But um I I and I like the way the bus stop looked. I like I, I like the I like the production. There are people who you know I that I went with people who were just in the audience who. I thought it was just unfair to put the two of them together, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, and it's like that with every revival. Like I saw Pippin, mm-hmm. <laughs> there are people who saw the original Pippin. It's like, you know, they, they put them together and it's like, it's unfair. Yeah. Um, but uh, what I, uh, what I did like as well was I, I, I like kind of like the, um, there, there are moments, there are musical changes as well. Um, that, that really worked with this piece, uh, that, that with this version of it, I guess, I guess my problem with it, and this is like a thing of like when you talk about studied, is that like, and I'm not, I'm never really this way when it comes to acting and when it comes to like British productions versus American productions, but like a story that is looking at um, African American culture, you know, and yeah. particularly in the 1960s, early 1960s, there's something to be said about bringing over British talent. And like what that and and, and so th- there were some moments where it did sound um, different. Yeah, it's it's it sounded less um, authentic, I guess you know. Uh, yeah, I, you know, and, and like and so like the to me in this rendition, um, they, they didn't sound like the Supremes to me. They sounded like Martha and the Vandellas, you know, which is a yeah. different girl group. You know, yeah. like there, there are moments where. You know, they're like, oh, it's this, you know, this is the shit bonds moment and it's time to let the run And it's just something that like I was very keen on because mm-hmm. I'm, I, I grew up with that music, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, uh, but I, but there are, there are, there are changes that I like. I mean, like, I love, I listen, I, I love me some, um, my girl, Tanya Pinkins. I think that like Tanya Pinkins is, uh, it's probably the greatest Broadway actor of her generation and uh i i love the original recording there was just something um i guess i i 
respond as a writer and as a person who just like loves the 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 art form of acting yeah. to Tanya Pinkins as a person who loves music my ear perked up when I listened to uh Sharon D. Clark the way I described it because I did have to actually write a review for the new cast recording Sharon sounds more in control of her instrument than Tanya does yeah uh, which is which provides you as the listener to relax a bit because you're never like is the note going to come out? Which happens to Tiny sometimes. You're like, you're like, is that note going to happen? Um, <laughs> but something that they talked about with the rehearsal process of the original was that they, there were, when they would rehearse the scenes, they would rehearse it without the music first. They would just do it as a scene. And then they would start going into the music element of it. And the way that Tanya described it was like, once a score is set, you are a slave as an actor to the rhythm of it. Like the way that it's notated. And it's like, mm-hmm. and that becomes your acting beats. And you and you are um, tied to that. So it helped us as actors, you know, do it as dialogue first. And then like based on certain things we wanted to emphasize, Janine would then like alter the rhythm of it so we could emphasize the word properly. Uh, and that's also how George C. Wolf acts. He's like, he's like, yeah, no, we it's like we do the text first. We start with the text and we do whatever. Um, Mike George C. Wolf is mostly just me talking really quickly, but that's how he talks. <laughs> no, um, actually, I, I interviewed Tanya Pinkins like, it's been a minute, but I've, I've interviewed her a couple of years ago um, for uh, Playbill. And mm-hmm. we, um, and one of the things we remember her talking to, uh, about was about like how we're like where she came from. She came mm-hmm. from like the Catholic church and doing hymns. And mm-hmm. so she had to learn to sound like little, like, um, like Caroline, yeah. you know, like, uh, you know, she can, she has a very, she can, you know, she has a very guttural, she can, you know, she, those, that, those, those, that, those instincts that she loves so much about her mm-hmm. <laughs> is how she sings naturally. She can do jazz, but like she had to learn how to sing like that. And, you know, Sharon B. Clark, she is a, she comes from like, you know, the gospel tradition. So you're just, you're hearing two different, you know, styles. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, sorry. And, and it's great to have those fast, again, like it just, the, it's the downside of being having you know one recording one production be your like pinpoint for 17 years because then something new comes in you're like all of a sudden you're you're caroline and now there is change and you're like oh yeah. my God. <laughs> and it comes fast or it comes slow Because we're uh, running out of time, yeah. I do want to men- uh, discuss two relationships in the show, uh, Caroline and Noah and Caroline and Emmy, because yeah. again, we talked about, you know, sort of how there's no singular hero. There's no singular villain in the show. Everyone has a moment where they're like, where they are in the right and then a the moment where they're being shitty. And yeah. Emmy is a great example of this where like Emmy is so politically conscious and she's brave and she uh-huh. and she's independent but she's also someone who because her, she's growing up in a time that's different from where her mother grew up and Tony yeah, Kushner yeah. also said that he was very he chose Lake Charles for two reasons one because it's where he grew up so it's autobiographical he knew it but he also said Lake Charles in Louisiana was a very special kind of place of the south especially at that time during the civil mm-hmm. rights movement 
things came to Lake Charles slower than it came to the rest of the South. And, it, mm-hmm. and on top of that, the civil rights movement there was a little more calm than in other areas. It was not necessarily police brutality and marches in the way that it was in Mississippi or Alabama. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, there's a bit of a safety net for Emmy to kind of feel a little more brave in this world. Mm-hmm. But be, with that also comes like her lack of understanding of who her mother is or what she's had to go through. So Emmy mm-hmm. could be this brave. And it really kind of comes to, there are two moments. One is when we first meet Emmy and she's snuck <laughs> out to go dancing in the parking lot the night that JFK has been assassinated. And mm-hmm. Caroline's like, the president's dead. And she's like, I know we danced anyway. And I'm like, this badass girl um which i remember uh, i i did like um samantha williams is the actress who played it yes. i did like her a lot she felt much more like a kid anika was a little more sort of poised and it made you kind of go who is this like she was just so she's more more she's a little bit more mysterious yeah and was and was more eager to be still and sort of laser focused on you, which made Emmy feel wise beyond her years. But then in act two, that comes back to bite you in the ass when they'll have the Hanukkah party and Emmy goes toe to toe with Rose's father about the civil rights movement and passive resistance. And she was like, you don't get it. And she's like, this isn't about you. This is about us. And I love that moment. She goes, I like to know, you're like, you know, so much sitting safe in New York state. I'm like, what a, ah, I love it. And then she has to go back into the kitchen and, and Caroline, you know, scolds her. And then Emmy turns on her mother with such, with such a, with such venom. And that's the word I was looking for. Thank you. (laughs) I was, I was like saying like veracity. I'm like, yeah, that too. But that's not the word I'm thinking of vitriol, such vitriol. But like with Anika, it was such laser focused vitriol of, I know what I'm saying. And I'm saying this to hurt you. And I need you to understand, like, I don't respect you, mom. And, you know, calling her maid and saying like you are just as guilty as everyone else here and then gets told what's what by Dottie who until then has been Emmy's uh ally and she was like you she's like you think your mom prefers to be a maid she does this so you can be you you respect mm-hmm. her and then Emmy has this has, and then Emmy kind of comes back around has her I hate the bus song which is fucking mm-hmm. glorious and then I love the way it ends when she sings, Mama, I'm sorry, I called you a maid. It's just so... Yeah. That you, you well, mean... my, my favorite part of the show, actually, is her last song in the, in the show. Um, because to me, it's her taking up the responsibility, the mantle to, like, you know, we talk, everything right now we talk about is, like, you know, especially, you know, our generation. It's very, like, you know, generational trauma and overcoming all, but that's what the show is about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is, this is a, a young girl who's literally, like, learning her parents' trauma, mm-hmm. learning, like, their inabilities, they're learning um, kind of, like, where they were stuck, you mm-hmm. know, like, where, where, her, where her, her mother is kind of, like, in this place and having to take up that and, like, her, the proud, like, her, her that she becomes proud of like her heritage of you know proud that her mother is a maid and proud mm-hmm. that she it's it's one of my favorite I like I, I tear up every time I, I I listen to that part yeah because it's just it's something that um it, it's her knowing that she's not scared of it you know become, like really kind of taking that like that like yeah my mother is maid and she's the toughest person you've ever had and like and like yeah. you know like it, it's 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 so good <laughs> yeah. well um, it's 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 um sorry to interrupt uh, yeah it's 
because you talked about our generation and I think it's yeah. Emmy is really great is an embodiment of sort of our generation where we start off with the like why do I have to worry about what it used to be like it's not that way anymore like why can't you catch yeah. up with me and but then she learns all the things that her mother has had to go through and so the exactly. word made which started as a slur is now a point of pride and yeah. she's like I'm going to be who I am in the future because of my mother and she's a maid she's tougher than you'll ever know and I am going to stand taller because of her in the earth so nothing grow too close but still her strong blood as opposed to like to Noah like um that that story um why that is so um it, it just it, it it's a really smart conversation about like allies and like or learning to be an ally mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and how it just goes so wrong um and uh what I like about they're kind of like they're mirroring their story um is you know yes everyone in the story is is very lonely you see the loneliness more so with the children than you see with the you know with the adults mm-hmm. um and and because you know yes you see rose and you see what she's going through and this kind of like loveless marriage it's not loveless but it's a it's a it's a very cold marriage you know yes. because she's having it's very rebecca-esque like she's having to deal with the you know her her best friend you know like the, the you know the ex-wife of this man um having to like you know deal with him, you know the child um but uh what I love about the, the you know these two kind of like mirroring worlds is um, Noah has this kind of like it, it, it's very much like it, it's it's very indicative too of like how like white children raised by maids you know? <laughs> <laughs> like how they see them as these superwomen they see them as the kind of the maternal figure more mm. so than their mother their, their you know their mothers because they had dinner with their mother and that's it really you know maybe a pat on the back mm-hmm. but like the, the maid is there you know, basically, like, they're there, they're raising them, and um, it's just a very smart conversation about um, about the, the the Mammy character, <laughs> like, about, like, what, you know, of, of what, you know, of, 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 you know, Black women basically having to take time away to raise these white children, um, and, and you see it in the venom, with, in the vitriol, with, uh, with Emmy, because she's not, she, her mother's not spending time with her. She's, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it's a very, um, to me, it's one of the, it's, it's, it's one of those moments where you're like, uh, this is like, this is why I guess, this is why I think it's one of his best books is because it's the most, probably the most empathetic writing I think I've seen in uh, the, of the canon of Tony Kushner's work. Um, totally. Yes. Angels in America is very empathetic, it's very smart, it's very, but like the fact that like he can he, he there was there was uh, there was so much love and so much understanding of both of these characters, uh, like these two children mm-hmm. and where they're coming from. Um, you don't really see that. Uh, you don't. There's an there's an emotional intelligence 
that not even like an and uh, you know a Wes Anderson <laughs> has for his his youth. You know, like yeah. um, these are these are you know yes they're precocious children and yes they are uh, they're wanting to they're lonely children isolated children uh, but there's a, uh, a a care there is a um and a and a, um, a a validation of their experiences that I don't think I've seen in a lot of children in their stories. Um, yeah, I think that uh, I think that Noah's character. I'm trying. I'm looking at the times. So I'm trying to like speed up. <laughs> no, we're, no, we're, we're, keep, we're. I'm gonna. We're gonna push back a couple of minutes just because I'm liking this and I want. I want to give this its proper due because I also. <laughs> I also have to shower because uh, no one knows because podcasts are famously not a visual medium. I am not looking great. I have to shower. I have to do all the things. Well, you you look fine on the camera. <laughs> Thanks, darling. Um, I think what helps with Noah being sort of the. I don't want to call it like educational purposes of like being an ally because it makes it sound, it makes the sound, uh, it makes the show sound uh, colder than it is. It's because it is, um, Angels in America is very much about humans, but also sometimes humans then become like political points in Angels in America, which works for the show because the whole show is political. But Carolina Change is about human beings from start to finish and all the political themes of it stem from it. No one actually is like, I'm a symbol for X. Like they're, they're people. Yeah, I know. I agree. And it I, helps them. Oh, sorry, sorry. Is no, that what no, you were saying? No, no, I guess what I meant by just saying ally um, is just like, it's, it's, you know, the kind of that, that starting, <laughs> that experience of like, this is my first Black friend or this is my yeah. first Black experience. Well, so, yeah. and this is the brilliance of having Noah be a child is he, while well, he, he's learning in the same way that a lot of other people have to learn. And Noah literally does all the things that we've been discussing about, like the ways that people think that they're being allies and they're actually not. Uh, yeah. he idolizes Caroline and thinks that she's like the strongest, coolest person in the world. But because of that, he's blind to literally all the struggles she goes through to be there every day and work. He says, you know, when Rose says to him, you know, you have to do better with your change. Like it's really insulting to Caroline, who's not making enough money to just see you casually have your change in your pockets. And he's like, no, Caroline likes the basement. This is her place. What are you talking about? Like, she's amazing. And, she, and she's like, Noah, no, she doesn't like this. Like you have to be more respectful of that. Like it's not enough to say Caroline's amazing. You also have to understand what she goes through because you can't, yeah. what you're projecting what you think she is just by complimenting her is not enough. That's not being an ally. Then there's the whole situation. Once the change situation starts to happen, the pocket change, yeah. I should say, not the change of comma or change, uh, the literal pennies and nickels. Yeah. Uh, Noah... <laughs> So, so Noah first, yeah, Noah leaves yeah. the change in his pocket first to see if she's actually going to take it. Then she does. And then he realizes that she, because Rose literally says, like, think of the things Caroline could do if, if she were to have this change. And Noah goes, huh. So if I leave this, Caroline can have some more money. In a way, I'm saving Caroline. And like, there's the. It, it, it comes about like white savior complex. Like, yep. like, and and what, makes the show, what makes the show so amazing. So, okay. Janine Tesori talks about this a lot with George C. Wolf. George C. Wolf taught her the term idiot space. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about for a second? Mm-hmm. Idiot space, yeah. Um, where, where he says an audience ha- needs to have moments where they don't necessarily have to listen. They're absorbing, but they aren't necessarily actively listening. It's just a moment for them to breathe. And you usually do it right before we launch back into something uh, important. So like Fun Home, I'll talk about in the Fun Home episode, but like the song Come to the Fun Home, where they do the fake commercial. Yeah. That's the idiot space before we dive into, you know, Allison seeing a dead body for the first time, yeah. uh, which is important. But so Roosevelt Petrucia's Coleslaw, which is a phenomenal act one finale, is technically speaking idiot space. 
However, it accomplishes a lot of different things storytelling wise. And this is where if you're a good writer, as all as Janine and Tony are, and you have a good yeah. director like George C. Wolf, you can accomplish both. Because it Roselle Patricia's call stock came about because Janine was like, I feel like we need to spend more time with Caroline's children. As of right now, yeah. they're merely sort of props. And so they came up with the idea of the afternoon finale is going to be her kids enjoying the riches of Caroline's labors. She gets the pocket change. She gives them a quarter, which they each get to have all on their own. And it leads into this joyful uh, moment for the, for the three kids. And then two things happen in this number. We have Noah who is singing to the audience what he's imagining what's happening at the Thibodeau house. They count my quarters and they talk about me and isn't that amazing? Thank God we can eat thanks to poor crazy Noah. And then we cut back and Noah's never mentioned. For all we know, Caroline's never talked about Noah to her kids. The only time we ever see Caroline obviously thinks about Noah. We have those imaginary scenes where she's like, oh, why am I thinking about you? I don't want to. Um, But like when Dottie goes, how's Noah? She's like, I don't care. Ask him. (laughs) Which I I love that joke. She's like, ask an eight-year-old how he's doing. Not my job. Um, But so we have that. So no, and and as you mentioned, like talks about the loneliness of Noah that in his mind, like it's so great. And he imagines that he's one of them because he wants that camaraderie. So we have that. And then the if this, if the show were simpler, if the show were less, more willing to let an audience just feel okay, it would just end with the kids joyfully dancing around Roosevelt Patricia's coleslaw, but they bring Caroline back. And she reminds us where this money is coming from and what she has to do to accept it. So while her kids are having this wonderful time, she has to swallow her pride and pocket change from a child in order to do this. It's, I just think it's so fucking great. I love that it, it, it shows all the elements. All the elements, Marcus. I threw my pen. It's my three, my throwing my shoe is my throwing my pen. But like also like what I love too is that he's like imagining like being like adopted by a black family mm-hmm. <laughs> and like taking that on. Um, it's, it's look, it's taking, and what musically what she does is that she takes on, it's multiple genres. Mm-hmm. It's there's a little bit of klezmer in there. There's a little bit of folk. There's a little bit of like street music, um, you know, and you know, like urban or you know, urban sounds. And then you get a little bit of like, you know, R and B in there. And it's just it's so like Motown R and B. And it's just mm-hmm. so, it's so good. Um, and 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 it's it, 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 I think it's like written. It's not like your traditional. It's not of like a verse chorus. It's like a, it's like an A A B. CD. <laughs> there's a, yeah, there's a whole somewhere. bridge section that goes on for two minutes before it then goes into like the moon. And it's, I, I love that whole bridge section where it's just a list. With, um, and Wonder Woman, Diana, Princess of the Amazon. It's so, oh God, I, I bop. Can you imagine being at the gym and someone's like, you're really jamming out on that treadmill. What were you listening to, Whitney? I'm like, no, I'm listening to Carolina Change. <laughs> <laughs> I'm running to Rose Patricia's coleslaw. It's, it's so great and like and what i what i love too about that particular moment um is, is uh, especially though because you know yes she's pocketing the change from the child but and it happens throughout with those imaginary conversations that she's having 
uh, to Noah um, throughout, the, throughout the song and throughout the piece um, is that like, it's, you know, you know that expression, like you are not your job. This is literally a person mm-hmm. who's taking on like, you know, she's taking her work with her. The, you know, the thoughts of this boy, this young boy back home with her, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, and in, in many ways, it's like he's, a, you know, a child that she's leaving behind, you know? Um, it, and it's, 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 it's so good. And I think that, like, I think that there is so, so much empathy with, uh, taken into account with everyone on that team. Yeah. You know, and, there, I want to close off the Noah's con- uh, conversation with just... Yeah their two final scenes together because we obviously the the what ends up what's so interesting there are basically two inciting incidents in carolina change Mm -hmm. normally a normal story like there's the inciting incident which launches the rest of the story there are two there's rose doing the the change rule Mm -hmm. and then rose's father coming down for hanukkah and giving noah a 20 dollar bill which then noah leaves in his pants pockets and he and caroline come to blows and Noah being a child and, you know, for all of the, for however much he says that he loves Caroline and thinks the world of her, now that he's got $20 and it mm-hmm. might go away to her, he loses his shit again because he's eight years old. And he's a mm-hmm. child. And he says a very hateful thing to her about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, President Johnson's having a bomb and he wants it, it to blow her up. And then there's a long beat and Caroline says something equally as hateful which ev- honestly yeah. for years i misinterpreted what she was saying yeah <laughs> she, she says to him hell is where jews go when they die i always went oh she's telling him he's gonna go to hell and then like a year ago a friend of mine was like no she just told him that his mother is in hell yeah which i never <laughs> connected the dots before and i was like oh my god <laughs> like jesus christ but so that and that is where that is sort of the breaking point for caroline because while she has to swallow her pride you know to take the change and that's sort of what the whole act two opener is is the radio kind of saying like listen who needs pride when your kids have to go to the dentist am i right and also like you've got christmas presents to buy the the she says the lines in lots white like spoke my hate to a child and that was sort of the breaking point for her and as we mentioned like she does change at the end of that but it's not the change that audiences expect they're like oh she'll be softer now or like now she's gonna go off and lead a corporation caroline's change company no like she closes herself off for good and knowing that all the progress that's going to happen will happen for her children and not for her and she's just going to have to go back to work and make sure that her children tragedy yeah people think it's it's um you know, you know, they, they want it to be a musical comedy, like they want it to be the help, but like the tragedy is that like Caroline essentially has she's killed herself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, she's yeah. emotionally cut herself off from the world and like and progress and like what's happening. She's All performed musical things. theater, she's performed musical theater Harakiri. That is what she's yeah. done. <laughs> um, oh, I love that. I love that. <laughs> write it down and use it in a play sometime. Uh as long as you write in the notation, I would like to thank Matt Comling for this line. Um, <laughs> I won't accept royalties. I just want the notation. But um, I, their, their final, final scene, because we've have, we have two moments in the show where Caroline imagines a conversation with Noah. It's, and it's, it's that Kushner thing, like Harper and Pryor yeah. scene in Angels in America, where it's yeah. like, where it's, is it's this? Ex- exactly what that is. The same technique. <laughs> yeah. It's a, and you're like, it's like, where in reality are we? Is this her imagination? Is this Noah's imagination? Are they weirdly kind of psychologically connecting? And I'm it is mostly, like, 
it's mostly Caroline's perspective, but there is an implication that Noah's kind of having this imaginary conversation as well. And they have the, the first time after Kennedy is shot. And it's such a funny line because he always, he calls he always calls her President Caroline. And then when he says, what are you going to do now that you're the only president in the United States? It's like such a childlike thing to say. But then at the end of Act Two, and, you know, talks about she we understand she's not going back to work. He's hiding from her because he's scared and embarrassed. And she said, you know, one day we'll start talking again. Uh, and it's it's one of those things where it's so quiet and so powerful when he keeps saying like, will we ever be friends again? And she goes, we were never friends. And he goes, well, do you miss sharing a cigarette? And she goes, you bet I do. And it's like, that's the closest thing Caroline will ever have to like giving Noah a hug. And mm-hmm. audiences, all audiences want are like Noah and Caroline to hug. And I'm like, that, that's a lesser musical. With, yeah. with, what actually ends up happening and the change for Noah that's actually very important is um, how he and Rose now connect by the end of the show. Which, of yeah. course, you know, I, we talked about with this revival, you know, they're on opposite ends of the stage on these set pieces that then merge together to show they've now merged. <laughs> um, but I remember in the original, you know, Noah's in bed and there's like they, they keep talking like he won't let Rose tuck him in at night. He only will let Stuart do it. And then at the end of the show, you know, Rose is, you know, kind of checking in on Noah and then he starts talking to her, basically giving her the eight year old invite of like, please come and tuck me in. I'm not going to say it outwardly, but he asks about his mom. Underground is underwater is my mom floating in the sea. And she says, don't, no, 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 no. She's safe. And like tucks him in. And like he lets her sit on the bed with him and lets her like touch his hand. And obviously like she's not going to give him this crying embrace and kisses. She can be like, oh, we're okay now, Noah. But it's the first step. And it's that step that it's not. Did you see the prom, Marcus? I did see the prom. Yes. <laughs> on, st- on, on stage? No, no. Okay, okay, no. So here's my... <laughs> the reason why I didn't see the prom is because... Uh, so I, I know, like, I like one song. Maybe two. <laughs> Maybe two. That's totally fine. But you saw the movie, I'm assuming, when you yeah. say you saw the Okay, yeah. movie's garbage. Uh, and one of, them, one of the things <laughs> they did in the movie that I fucking hated, and they did it because Carrie Washington's like, I want to be in the finale. She's like, okay, fine. We'll have you make a total 180 at the end and whatever. Say what you will about the prom. On stage, what they did very well is they showed all the various levels of acceptance uh, for people. So like, you know, we have the kids who do a total 180. We have uh, Barry's mom, who we never see in the show, but like she never comes to accept him. But Alyssa's mom, the one that Carrie plays in the movie, on stage, when she finds out that her daughter is gay, after like this whole musical where she's been the antagonist without her even realizing it, she realizes that she's been fighting oh, this entire time. She's not been fighting her daughter, but she can't quite get there yet because it's just mm-hmm. too soon. And what she says is, when you come home tonight, we'll talk. And then she walks off stage and it's just, and it, and you, and it's, it was so powerful because I was like, if this musical were worse, she would come out in her rainbow dress and hug her daughter. But the stage show, she's like, we'll talk. And you know, it's a step and it's brave. The movie, they're like, Carrie Washington comes out in a rainbow dress. Like, go fuck yourself. Well, she does that at the very end, but like, I wish that that scene happens. It does, but they change the tone of it. And it's, and when she says, we'll talk, it's more like, whatever, we'll talk and like runs away. And I remember being like, oh, that's interesting. They made her like not really that accepting. And then she comes up back at the end and she's like, I'm in a rainbow dress. I accept you now. But I bring it up (laughs) because Carolina change, that moment with Rose and Noah is a step. And you know that it's going, that they are now building 
their relationship now that he, he and Caroline have severed that rather toxic connection um, yeah. for both of them. And now there's he will have a healthier connection with Rose. Yeah, um, that. <laughs> okay. Say your, um, say your piece. No, I, okay, I love the ending. I didn't like the ending uh, at the end of the recent revival. Um, but what I like about. Um, what I, okay, what I want to say <laughs> is that. Yes, I do like the 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 um the the state the 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 connection that kind of like we're building a bridge, um, to it, and it's it's very natural, yeah. um, but like, and this is where I would argue that like, you know, those uh, in a lesser musical, it would it would come off as as this, it's you know it's very cold, and there's no warmth in this musical, um, but I think that like. Uh, what I what I like about the show is the only time we really see people embrace is when Caroline is embracing her children when she yeah. gives them the the quarters, mm-hmm. you know. Um, when you know at the end of the show, uh, towards the end of the show, when uh, Emmy apologizes to Caroline mm-hmm. and she gives her a hug, um, that's really the only. No one else embraces. No one really in the um, maybe the grandpa, uh, Rose's father. Uh, you know, to, to to Noah, and that's like when he's giving him the twenty, and it's more like a, hey, buddy. <laughs> well, he makes it a political statement. He literally tells yeah. an eight-year-old, "I'm giving you twenty dollars, and know that any dollar you ever get from now on, you are ripping out of the mouth of someone else." Like, and his and Rose is like, "Jesus, he's eight. Just give him the money." No, no, of course, no. But he, he's doing it to try to teach him to about the value of money. Yeah, which is something that like his father and and Rose is not really teaching him. You know what I'm saying? Not um, effectively. And, yeah. And so even though it even though it comes off as mean, there's a warmth to it because you know you could argue, especially later when she talks to her father. It's like, well, you know what you did, right? Right? Like you meant to sever that relationship between him yeah. and Caroline. Like, say whatever you want. Like you, like, you don't own it. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, well, and like, so like, that was so. Uh, there were two things about Carolina Change that went through a lot of uh, change, so to speak. Uh, first of all, Lot's wife had like a million incarnations. They yeah. say, and I think the title of the song. While it has stuck, it used to be a lot more biblical. Like the first three iterations were like had all these biblical things, and the way that uh, they described it is like uh, Tanya comes in after like the third go around. She's like, I don't understand any of these references. Like she, this makes no sense to me. And then George Wolf's like, you know, I don't think Caroline would be speaking like this grandly to herself. And Tony goes to Janine to story. We're like, God damn it, you're both right, but we've already written this three times. Must be right a fourth time. And then they end up writing like seventeen versions. But the other two things are, they musical said that, um, yeah, musical theater, two, two nights before the first performance at the public was when they wrote the coda for the final scene with Emmy. Like, I think Emmy was always supposed to come out and do a little bit uh, about like the, I'm the daughter of a maid, but they added the whole bit about how she was part of the group that took down the Confederate statue. Yeah. Um, saying evil, you got to go. And it was so powerful to watch Anika literally just stand center stage and look out at the audience and be like, listen just listen um uh, i'm not going to move i'm not gonna dance for you i am i am staring you all down so you can hear what the fuck i have to say and my god did we um girlfriend wanted tony for a reason but the yeah. other thing was um <laughs> the other thing i think that they said was uh when they moved to broadway they added that scene in act two between rose's father and her 
where he's like, you might not have meant to drive a wedge, but like subconsciously you meant to drive a wedge between Noah yeah. and Caroline. He looks at her as a mother. Now you can be the mother. And Rose, who's like, oh, it's a scene where like Rose needs to hear it, but also it's a kicking a puppy while they're down situation. Like tell her this tomorrow, not today while she's literally going through it because she's like, she's like it totally untethers her she's like yeah of course i meant to like ruin the dreams of a child and by the way in case you haven't noticed he still won't let me touch him and because she's she's so like i cannot emphasize enough how lonely rose is she's so i know i know no i I mean i i I agree i mean like i listen i I, you know we can be an advocate for but but being an advocate for him i i thought that like she needed to hear it she did you know because because it's Caroline or change, but Rose needed to change. Everyone needs to change, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and I, you know and he you know I feel like because she's in a, a, a not a loveless marriage, but in a very cold, vacant marriage. Um, yeah, uneven it, marriage. It's lopsided it, I mean, for sure. Yeah, she's 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 providing the the heart, the warmth, the passion, and he's kind of just he's making sure that, you know he's giving he's making sure there's a roof over their head. He's making sure, you know, he's taking care of those, those fundamentals. Um, but, um, but she, she needs someone to kind of, to be honest with her mm-hmm. and, you know, you know, and Caroline's yeah. not really speaking to her. Caroline is like, this is our relationship, you know, well, <laughs> but, you know, what's interesting. So, and we're, we got to start wrapping things up, but yeah. I mean, we all kind of do these mental gymnastics to, for ourselves, right. To like justify why we do X, Y, Z. And, you know, we see this in the long distance call with Rose and her father, right. Where she's saying, uh, she starts off by saying like, God knows we're not poor, but you know, X, Y, Z. And then when her father's like, we'll give her a race, like, well, we can, we're broke. It's like, well, are you broke or are you not poor? And, and then, you know, saying, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm miserable. I'm just, I'm, it's fine. I'm not miserable. Caroline may be the only person in the show who's like very bluntly honest about how she's feeling, where she's at. Everyone else uh, is honest with themselves to a degree, but everyone needs a little bit of that brutal truth in order to move, to move on and move forward. And we'll see it with Emmy, with Noah, Rose, even Dottie. And and I think what's interesting with Dottie, who's relatively a minor character, but Dottie also sort of uh, resembles progress because she's making changes for herself you know she's going to night school she's gonna she's not just gonna be a maid she's gonna be better and there's definitely a resentment there from caroline of like oh miss high and mighty going to school she has Mm -hmm. a thing about her wearing bobby socks which i'm like what a specific thing to harp on your old friend like look at you with your socks (laughs) that's how we call petty ma'am um yeah no but daddy kind of represents like you know like education doesn't mean like you know like street smart or or, or where yeah. like the larger you know ramifications of the world and even though like Dottie is you know she's tuned into news she's tuned into like what's going on in the world you know there there's a there's a a, a, a street smart there's a there's a lived reality that like Caroline is just very aware of yeah. you know She's aware of like Valenci. She's aware of that, and she's closed herself off to it. She's in survival mode, and um, and you know, yes, you can argue that Dottie's in survival mode, but her she still has room to dream. Mm-hmm. And there are people who can't dream. She doesn't have, you know. You know yeah, saying? there's there's almost something. There's a weird kind of synergy of, about the fact that like we have all these inanimate objects that sing, right? And then also we have things like the moon, which is more like an atmospheric kind of character. Like mm-hmm. it's 
the moon never actually really sings to anybody. It more sort of sets the tone, but also talks about when change is happening, right? When JFK mm-hmm. gets assassinated and the bus comes forward, it becomes this giant like uh, tectonic shift. Is that what I'm looking for, tectonic? Like tectonic yeah. plates? Yeah. Yes. Sometimes I say words <laughs> that sound right and I'm not No, sure. that was right. That was right. You got it. Hey, thank you. <laughs> Vitriol. So, uh, but it, it, I feel like there's a weird synergy there of how like the idea of change is such an abstract concept to Caroline in the sense of, you know, you can talk about the civil rights movement and the political change and all the, and all this progress, but what's happening in our lives right now in front of us is what's real to me. Like, that's all yeah. I can talk about. Cause that's what I know. Like what I, what you talk, I mean, Dottie has a TV, they have a radio, but like what we hear on the radio and TV, that's not real. That's not something you can touch. The uniform yeah. I wear is something I touch. The fact that my feet hurt is something that's real. And I think, I don't know if it was intentional yeah. or not, but there's a synergy about that of like the abstract objects like the moon singing about change then the idea that change is also a foreign concept that no one's able to really grasp it's we they talk about it but no one totally gets it yes um mm. we went to school did you know that we both went to school (laughs) (laughs) i mean and there's and there's so many other better forests about it too it's just like the the how it means true north and like the you know um and you know the symbolism of the moon, the African American diaspora, and like and what that is. But mm. yeah, you it's just good. like you just gave me some. You just gave me some things. I, I think like, I have this book literally in front of me. I should just like, re- read it. Again. <laughs> we all got. We got to all got to read it again. Marcus, this has been lovely. I, we this got. We got to head that hell out. Thank you so much for making the time for making no, this and- happen. I'm so glad we did this. And I'm so sorry, once again, for being late, but I'm so glad that we got to do this. To quote quote the moon, change comes fast and change comes slow. And you were both slow and fast. And I loved both of it. I loved both speeds. (laughs) Where can people find you if you want them to find you? Um, I am uh, very pretentious. Uh, Not not me, the person, but the the title uh, is uh, the real Marcus Scott at Gmail. Mm -hmm. I want to say Gmail at Instagram. (laughs) <laughs> when I see Gmail um, <laughs> and real Marcus Scott Twitter um, or you can find me at writemarcus.tumblr.com because Amazing. I still use the Tumblr we, love to see <laughs> um, we are going to now transfer into the epilogue of this episode where I'll be going solo uh, yeah we're gonna let's do a little transitional music into that uh, <laughs> everyone say bye to Marcus bye Marcus bye Carolina Change premiered at the Public Theater on the Newman stage on October 29th, 2003, before opening on November 30th, running until February 1st. It then transferred to Broadway, opening on May 2nd, 2004, at the Eugene O'Neill Theater, to a very uh, varied critical response. There was some effusive praise, and then often a lot of dismissive admiration. If you watch the documentary show business, it is about the Broadway season of 2003 to 2004 that includes Wicked, Avenue Q, Carolina Change, Taboo, all these other things. And there's a constant check-in with, you know, a 
table of critics, critics and columnists talking about the season. And, you know, we check in every couple of months with them. And what's interesting is that Linda Weiner of Newsday was so against this show, dismissing it and saying that it does nothing new, even though the show thinks it does. And I think that's absolutely wrong. And I think that's a very shallow interpretation of it. But it's fascinating to me that Linda Weiner, who is a critic who I've enjoyed a great deal, was so against it. But then again, Ben Branley, who, again, does not bat a thousand as a critic. I don't agree with all of his opinions, but he is a rather insightful critic and he can usually acknowledge when a show is succeeding at what it's trying to do, even if he doesn't like it. He really didn't get this show. He found it very cold and unmoving, but he admired its um, ingenuity and its, uh, you know, its far-reaching qualities, you know, how, how creative and inventive it was trying to be, even though he thought that it ultimately failed. The show was nominated for six Tony Awards, including Best Musical and Best Score and Best Book. It lost all three to Avenue Q. I remember that year, the Wicked upset of both Musical and Score was a lot. And it did feel like Wicked was going to win those. But I did, in the back of my mind, hope that Caroline could win both. I will say this right now. I love Wicked. And I think Defying Gravity is one of the most foolproof Act 1 finales of all time. The Carolina Change score is better, if only because it's connected to a book that supports it so much more than the book of Wicked does. The only Tony that Carolina Change won was for Anika Noni Rose as Emmy. It was a big breakout performance. You know, she went on to star in the Dreamgirls movie. She came back to Broadway in Cat on the Hot Tin Roof. She now has, you know, all these TV and film credits. She's the voice of Tiana in Princess and the Frog, really kind of launching her career. Tanya Pinkins gave what was perhaps a career best performance in this show, losing her Tony to Adina Menzel in Wicked. Tanya Pinkins was a respected, hardworking actress. Still is, you know, hardworking. And I'm not going to sort of get into the politics of Tanya Pinkins today, but just more sort of where Tanya Pinkins was in 2004. You know, she made her Broadway debut as a child in the ensemble of Mary Lee We Roll Along, came back to the theater scene in Jelly's Last Jam, directed by George C. Wolfe, where she won a Tony Award and also was a big success on a soap opera. She sort of had all of it taken away from her, all that success taken away from her. She went through a very messy divorce that pretty much financially cleaned her out, and she spent the rest of the 90s kind of taking any job she could get. You know, a couple of Broadway shows, none of which really went anywhere. She did do Thoroughly Modern Millie at La Jolla. She did a couple of different... Um, regional productions. She taught a lot, and then her first uh, return her her first return to Broadway of the two thousands was in Wild Party, where George C. Wolfe decided that she was going to be Carolina uh, in Carolina Change, and the show sort of developed around her over the next three years. And Caroline was a big, you know, star return for her. She was the leading role in this musical, and as we've discussed, you know, online on social media and all this public discourse the last couple of years. The lack of stories for BIPOC artists, for you know, uh, the stories that are not about white characters, are few and far between. And for the longest time, they were written by white creatives. Now, something like you know, Dreamgirls or Tap Dance Kid, you can definitely poke holes in all of that because there is a lot of. Um, musical theater sheen I'll put it that way to those shows that make them very entertaining but maybe don't necessarily dig as deep into the african-american experience as they should sometimes they do but not not enough Carolina change because it was 
developed with uh, black artists. It had George C. Wolfe as its director. Hope Clark was the choreographer. Tanya Pinkins as its lead, who was very vital to the creation of this piece. The very raw and blunt depiction of the African-American experience of this time really threw a lot of white audiences for a loop, especially a lot of critics. The fact that Caroline is so... Um, bitter and is so off-putting really kind of turned people away and her performance which was really you know filled with pain and anguish was divisive for a lot of people or people who loved the performance didn't love the show enough to give it to her do I think Adina Menzel deserved her Tony Award yes in a lot of ways, yes. I also think Tanya Pinkins deserved it. That was also the same year that we had Donna Murphy giving a career best performance in Wonderful Town, but she was also famously missing a lot of shows. Kristen Chenoweth missing a lot of shows in what was her big return to Broadway. And then we had Stephanie DeBruzzo for Avenue Q, who gave a lovely performance, but wasn't the kind of star-making turn that Tony voters like to vote for. You know, it was a role that fit her perfectly, and a lot of times that kind of uh, just natural ease is not um, recognizable enough for voters to see that it is that it takes a lot of work to make it look that easy. But alas, her show won Best Musical. Carolina Change ended up closing at the end of the summer of 2004 after um, just under 140 performances. It then performed in San Francisco and in Los Angeles with Anika Noni Rose and Tanya Pinkins reprising their parts. The show then transferred to London in 2006 at the National Theatre. The entire original production with Tanya Pinkins once again reprising her role. And the show won the Olivier for Best Musical, beating out Avenue Q and Wicked, which wasn't even nominated for Best Musical at the Olivier's that year. So, like, how things turn around quickly in just two years. And then we had a revival that began at the Chichester Festival, starring Sharon D. Clark. It then transferred to the West End, then transferred to Broadway with The Roundabout, once again starring Sharon D. Clark. And the show finally got the raves it deserved. Critics finally recognized that the show was a masterpiece. But that is where we leave Carolina Change with this episode. Fun fact... Janita Sori did win her very first major award for this show. She won the Drama Desk Award for Best Music, though she lost the Tony for Best Score. This is also the only Drama Desk that Janita Sori has won up until this point. She has not, she did not win for Fun Home, she did not win for Soft Power. It's all very, very crazy. That's it for this episode, guys. Um, I totally forgot when I was recording with Marcus to ask him my wrap-up questions, my rapid-fire questions. So I asked him after the fact, and he emailed me his responses, and I told him that I would read them out verbatim. So these are Marcus's words. I am going to do my best to make them sound sexy, but, you know... Y'all will interpret how you interpret. Question one, the Tesori tune. What is your favorite song in Carolina Change? Marcus wrote, well, I mistakenly called it Salt's Wife, I think, on the podcast. Don't think he did. I would be remiss not to mention Lot's Wife, which is arguably the best nervous breakdown solo since Julie Stein and Stephen Sondheim penned Rose's Turn. Uh, fun fact, Rose's Turn was mostly Sondheim. I think Stein came in and, you know, uh, refined some of the music, but it was mostly sometime. That's not Marcus. That was me being a douche. Um, it requires technique because you're literally slamming the vocal cords and the transition from chest to head voice at the end of the song can be brutal if you haven't really worked on the peaks and valleys of a song. 
It also requires precision of character and an understanding of the entire narrative before the moment, diction, breath control, and a natural rawness. Basically, you need acting chops and a multi-octave vocal agility to conquer this beast. But what do I enjoy more? I already mentioned Sunday Morning, which again has some of the best character motif melodies I've ever heard, and of course, Roosevelt Patricia's Coleslaw, which is very indicative of the funk-driven, Motown-flavored 1960s street music of yesteryear. But for my money, the song I keep coming back to is I Got Four Kids, music Basically, the swamp rock groove underneath the music is easy to latch onto, but what really stands out here is that there's an uncanny vocal tick that the legendary Tanya Pinkins incorporates throughout the song, which is truly bewitching. Not to mention, there's that gospel-tinged yodel within the riff after she belts four kids. You're not a musical theater kid if you haven't crashed and burned trying to imitate it. No complaints here. Totally love that song, and especially how Tanya does it. There's also... um. We talked about it before, the pain that's in her performance. It's really heard in the way she sings that, especially that yodel on the four kids and the hit and turn the other cheek. There's sort of like, um, it's hard to say this without sounding um, wrong, but I'll do my best. There's almost kind of like a bit of a like slave workers, like him to it with the way that, that the song is sort of, driven you know especially the way that um the dryer is singing underneath with this tension and exhaustion and pain that you can just sort of feel coming from that era uh it's a really powerful song question two gimme gimme a revival please uh if you could cast a revival even though we just had one or what would you want to see in a revival what would it be? Marcus wrote, Although I can't imagine her coming back to Broadway for at least a decade, Hollywood takes our Broadway stars and throws money at them, and before you know it, a decade has passed before they've been on a proscenium stage. I'd like to see Patina Miller come back and do the role of Caroline Thibodeau. Maybe Anna Kendrick can play Rose Gelman? Weird casting, perhaps, but acting-wise it could work. In the past, I would have suggested Adrian Warren for the roles of Emmy Thibodeau or Dottie Moffat, but that ship has sailed. I think that's like, yeah, that's uh, star casting for Adrian. Although Adrian would be a phenomenal Caroline in about 20 years. Or even really 10. In 10 years, she's technically in the right age bracket. But, you know, we tend to cast older with these roles. Totally a patina. I think Anna Kendrick is actually quite inspired casting. I think she'd do a really good job with Rose. Question three, raise me up. Do you think this show was properly appreciated when it first came out? Marcus writes, check out the documentary Show Business, The Road to Broadway, and you'll know that Carolina Change was virtually slept on by critics and audiences alike in favor of shinier, happier musicals like Wicked and Avenue Q. We mentioned this earlier. Uh, <laughs> it's a show that continues to surge in popularity by lovers of the musical theater canon because of its message and to Story's approach to harmonies, which trains to the musical ear to listen to differently. Uh, it will get its due, but probably probably not for another 18 years or so. I would argue that the show is really starting to get its due. It's never going to be, you know, a mainstream hit. It's just not that uplifting. It has a actually quite powerful moment at the end with Emmy, but it's not, you know, was I, th I don't know if I mentioned this before, but Les Mis and Titanic, Titanic the movie, not the musical, although arguably the musical as well, share DNA in the sense that like we go through this massive trauma in the second half of the story with all of these deaths. But what brings it back around to the point that it becomes a worldwide phenomenon is when everyone kind of comes back in this uplifting way. You know, Rose passes on and gets to go back to the Titanic and is reunited with Jack. And we see all the people who died and, you know, in Les Mis, all the 
spirits come back and sing the powerful anthem of Do You Hear the People Sing. Carolina Change doesn't have that. It's much quieter, though equally as powerful moment. And that's sort of the difference between it being, you know, a respected musical and a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, I do think it's starting to become much more respected. And we mentioned show business. Uh, but yes, I think over time you will see it more and more brought into the echelon of musical theater writing question number four caroline it or change it if there's one thing in this show what would you change marcus writes the show's libretto and musical score are just uncompromising as its heroine to change it would defeat the purpose of telling the story marcus couldn't agree more not a single thing i would change about it i do think something about caroline change and this is not necessarily a flaw but why i think sometimes people have a hard time gravitating towards it it does wear its weirdness on its sleeve and it is very dense. So things like the moon, um, things like the bus, not everyone's going to grasp onto those roles singing, why they're singing, what they mean in the context of the show, how it all works. It's very, it's a show that does not over explain these things. It just sort of is and you're like either in or you're out. And that's wonderful, but it is something that I think uh, not every audience member is going to get, as we witnessed when it first happened and in the most recent revival. Uh, so I don't know if that's something I would change, but I do think it's something to discuss with a director for a revival of, you know, do we want to engage the audience a bit more with these particular tropes, or do we just sort of lay it bare and see if they come along? TBD. I also want to do some house cleaning for a second because uh, since we started recording the new series, we got two new reviews on iTunes and I want to give both of them a shout out. So cue the light in the piazza music. Five stars, insightful and entertaining. Matt needs to be writing musical theater history textbooks. That's it. That's the review. I would write history textbooks, but I'm lazy. And while I do enjoy writing, I... I blow past deadlines like Tony Kushner, so I would need someone on me to make sure that I actually complete said textbook. Next review, five stars. Matt Koplick, greatest star of all. First of all, how dare you do a Sunset Boulevard reference on that review, but okay, it's fine, whatever. Take a little Walter Kerr, add the crass hilarity of Elaine Stritch, and throw in some homoeroticism, and you have the genius that is Matt Koplick. No notes, love the show so much. Thank you for not giving me any notes. I love not having notes. I love being perfect. Uh, I'm assuming the homoeroticism that you're referring to is my sexual magnetism, my charisma, my uniqueness, nerve, and talent. And then, of course, any time that I talk about any time that a man has touched me, which is, you know, it's not, it's not rare, but it doesn't happen all the damn time. If you like the podcast, guys, uh, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, give us a nice five-star review. Catch us next week when we cover the big, big spectacle movie musical of Janine DeSori's career, Shrek. It has almost as much xenophobia, however, much more flatulence. And for that, we are grateful. Uh, as you all know, we do close out every week with a Broadway diva, and I am shocked to learn that we have yet to close out with Anika Noni Rose. We have closed out with Tanya Pinkins, and we have closed out with Ramona Keller, who is one of the original radio ladies in the 2004 production. But we have not closed out with Anika Noni Rose, at least I don't think so. I went through the archives, I couldn't find it, and I am shocked. Shocked, I say! 
especially considering I love her ever so much. So we are going to close out with Anika. And that is it. Have a wonderful rest of your week. We will catch you next week. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.